Thanks for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at IamTheExchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at IamTheExchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. In this message, you will be encouraged and challenged as you start to understand what you've been seeing as problems, God sees as harvest. Today I want to share with you a message that I think is really important, and it's, it has to do with the season that we're in as a church. You know, this September, we will celebrate three years. We'll be three years old in September, and, and I'm excited about that, and I'm so excited about the season that we're in. Because God, we've seen God do some really incredible things, uh, especially over the last seven, eight months in our church. When we moved into this location in October, um, it was a, a very distinct dif- and difference, I guess is the best word, uh, a turning point for our church and where we are. And, uh, and I think God, and I've loved every moment on this journey, but we're in a season uh, of growth, and it's exciting, and I want to share that this morning, talk about our hearts, so stand with me. We're going to begin reading in the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of John. We're going to start reading at John chapter number 4, starting in verse 34. Everyone say, my food. Come on, say, my food. Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then he says this, don't you have a saying It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open up your eyes and look. The fields are ripe. Open up your eyes and look. The fields are ripe for harvest. Come on, Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, open up your eyes and look. The fields are ripe for harvest. That should be exciting. That should be exciting. If you're the listener and Jesus is saying that to you, that should be an exciting time, right? Open up the field. Open up your eyes. The fields are ripe for harvest. So the question for you this morning is, are you going to be about a meal or about a mission? And we're going to talk about that. Father, I pray right now over this time we have together, God, I pray that you open up our, our hearts to receive something very specific, God. Lord, and I know that receive something very specific, God. Lord, and I know that, that as, as this message goes out, God, that you're going to uh, open our eyes to see something that you're trying to do in us and through us. And so, God, we receive this with open arms, Father. I pray that you use me as your mouthpiece, God, to speak your love into your church. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody say amen. 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 You may be seated this morning. You know, the toughest thing I think about uh, ministry, being a pastor, one of the the toughest things is um, taking a scripture like this and putting it into context, clearly putting it into context so that everyone understands it, you know? I think the, the biggest danger that the church sees, um, and it, we see it with, with church people, and then when we see it with people outside of the church, is it's they take a scripture and they remove it, they take it out of context, and they kind of manipulate, they'll take the, maybe the scripture and they'll add a different front or a different back to it, and they manipulate it so that it fits their agenda. Y'all ever seen that? I know you've seen that. I mean, we see it. You see it all over social media all the time. Well, the Bible says, and you've got two drastically different sides using scriptures to, like, stab each other, you know? They're, like, killing each other with scriptures. Yeah, but the Bible says, and, man, they're just killing each other with scriptures. Yeah, but the Bible says, and, man, they just tear this side down. And then the other side goes, but the Bible also said, and neither one of them are in context. Right, And so as a pastor, you have to take context and you have to really put it in the right situation and make it applicable. applicable, And that becomes challenging. 
Context is this. It's the circumstances that form the setting for an event, a statement, or an idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. So we're going to take the the passage that we just read. For example, Jesus is quoting a, a proverb. This is a Middle Eastern saying that he's using here, and he's talking to his audience, and he says this in verse 35. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. Don't you have a saying that it's still four months to harvest? Now, how many of you use that saying all the time? You're right, because we don't have that saying. And so Jesus is trying to use a saying that he says that they say that we never, ever say. And yet today, I'm trying to preach a message on this saying that you never say. So you don't say that, so I'm supposed to preach the message. Isn't it still, don't you have a saying, it's four months to harvest? And you should sit there and go, no, it's not. I don't have that saying. You know what I mean? You never say it. I've never seen Jason Cuevas on a Tuesday night crank one, bat flip, and say, it's four months to harvest. <laughs> right? We don't do that. I've never seen Shelly walk upstairs and the kids have pulled all the toys out of the playroom and they're just piled up everywhere and she walk up, walks upstairs and takes a deep breath and goes, it's still four months till harvest. I don't know how exactly you say it, if you say it with a lot of passion or if you say it with a lot of conviction or you say it sad or, you know, I'm trying to figure out in my golf game, do I use it on a good shot? Bam! Four months to harvest or do I... Put and miss it and go, oh, still four months to I don't know because I don't have this saying. So the context is important. When you don't have that saying, when you don't get it, it's really tough to understand exactly where it's going. And when Jesus says this, he's speaking to an agricultural community, okay? He's talking to people to an agricultural community, okay? He's talking to people who, one, either are farmers whose families are farmers, or they know every farmer in the area because this is an area full of farmland. So when Jesus says this saying, they all get it. They all understand it. And so it's really tough to take an illustration, an agricultural illustration, and use it in a, in a Facebook world because that's what we're in. We're in the social media world, so we don't get sayings like that. So context is important. Context is what gives you compassion for people, okay? Uh, It's easy to say what that person ought to do in that situation because you're not that person. And if you were that person, you probably wouldn't be doing as good as they are doing in that situation. And so to have compassion for the person in that situation, you have to understand the context which got them in that situation. So we, we pass people all the time, and, and you look at people and you go, huh, wow. And we immediately make judgments or assumptions about people not, without knowing any context. About people not, without knowing any context. Have you ever like pulled up next to someone? I do this. I do that. I got to admit, I, I, Lord, I apologize in advance. Have you ever pulled up to somebody and you look at them? They're the only person in the vehicle. And you look at them and go, oh, they're in a bad mood or whatever. Or like, you know, they got this look on their face like they're on their way to go kill someone right now. And I look at them and I... I like to play the game with my wife sometimes where you just pretend what people are thinking and saying, you know. At a restaurant, you're looking at this couple, and they're having a heated debate, and so you just make it up, and it's like about SpongeBob and Patrick or something. (laughs) I love those things, just reading people, but when you pull up next to somebody and you see that you have no idea the context, and without knowing context, you cannot really have compassion. That's why occasionally Shelly will leave both little ones with me, and then disappear. <laughs> and she'll say, you deal with them. And she'll disappear. Dry like the car. I can hear down the street. What she's trying to do is give me context of what she has dealt with so then I can in return have 
compassion. Okay, does that make sense? See why context is important? If you don't have context, it really messes everything up. And so you've got to have context. That's why texting people is so dangerous. Texting is very dangerous. I thank God for emojis. I thank God for emoji because I'll have to text and 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 I'm not picking on you, babe. I don't know why I was, but Shelly, I have to tell her all the time: reread my text with a smile. Okay, read my text because you're taking it the wrong way. That's not how I said it. So when I said this, I was saying it with a smiley face and a happy face and the clappy hands and woohoo! This is all exciting. You're taking it as like. What's for dinner? I'm taking it as like, hey, I'm hungry. What's for dinner, babe? We're going to go out. And, and you're saying, what's the problem? Why I got to always be cooking? Why is it my problem? I'm not saying she says that, but y'all know what I'm saying, right? And we read text, and it's like all messed up because we get it. And so now when you text, you have to use emojis. Like, what's for dinner? Mad face? Or what's for dinner, excited face. Or what's for dinner, like, uh, suspicious face. <laughs> so, so context is important. You can't have compassion without context. We, have, we build preconceived notions about things, and we read it in our text, but we have preconceived notions about black people, about white people. We have preconceived notions about people that work in the medical field, people who work in government, have government jobs, preconceived notions about foreigners, until we have a black person join our family, and then we have to take the concept that all people are created equal, and you have to build a context around that, because now they're in your family. I get that. I remember when I adopted Jenica as a baby, and for those of you who don't know, I have a, a little girl that, that I adopted from Haiti when she was a baby, and uh, she's now 17, so she's not so little, and she eats a lot and drives a car and stuff, so she costs a lot of money now, <laughs> but, uh, but when I adopted her, I spent a year going back and forth to Haiti every month to see her. And built this relationship, fell in love. She's my daughter. God made it so clear she's my daughter. I bring her home, and I don't realize until somebody else goes with me that people stare at me all the time. Okay? So when I go out to eat, somebody that hasn't been around a lot, they'll be sitting with me, and they're like, man, you get a lot of stares when you walk in with Jenica. I mean, especially when she was a baby, when she was little. And I was like, really? I do? I haven't noticed. Context, it's preconceived notions, and and that has happened. I got stopped by a, a humble police officer a few years ago, and I got yanked out of the car. I had to stand there. I was not allowed to move. They had my daughter. She had her hands on the dash, and they're screaming at her. They're screaming at me, trying to figure out why she's with me, what my agenda is with her. I was telling them, she's 12. She's 12. Stop yelling at her. It's context. You don't understand the context. You can't have compassion for my situation. I did something that I thought was, was right, that was God's plan for my life. And now you're taking it out of context, and you're making it a very ugly situation. Concepts, though, look sexy. Concepts are exciting, right? Concept, the concept of a growing church, concepts are exciting, right? Concept, the concept of a growing church is exciting until you have nowhere to park, okay? It's exciting until you have guests show up, like Bert shows up, and, and I'm watching this guest come into our church for the first time. I'm meeting him. I'm like, man, it's so good to have you here. And Bert walks outside, and I watch him wade through water that's up to his calves, to get to his car, climbs in the passenger side of his car so that he can drive up here to pick up his family. And I'm like, hey, good job. We won't get that guy ever back to our church. So concepts are sexy. Our church is growing. This is exciting. But when you've got no room in the parking lot, that's a problem. 
When you've got no room, your church is growing, but there's no room in the kids' ministry. That's a problem. Concepts can be sexy, but you have to go from concept to context. We can say things like this, and I'm, I'm building something here, so bear with me. We can say things like, thank you for the blood of Jesus that has been shed over my life. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that exciting? And see, that's exciting to you because you have context. But if you've not grown up in church or been around church, and I've heard this from a number of people, especially in the, in the years growing up in youth ministry, when you come to church, and we used to sing a lot of songs about the blood. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Well, if you're new and you've never been here before and it starts talking about the blood washing all over you, that's weird. Okay? Having a conversation with my son Parker and I'm trying to explain to him why we want the blood of Jesus to wash all over us, that's hard for him to understand. Okay, having someone else bleed all over me does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. But he doesn't have the he doesn't understand that John three sixteen says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe could have ever let He gave His only Son as an atonement for my sin." See, my four year old doesn't understand that. My four-year-old doesn't understand that John 1 said that. My four-year-old doesn't understand that John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus. Everybody say the blood. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. See, my four-year-old probably doesn't understand the power of the blood that has washed in my life that Hebrews 10, 14 says, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One sacrifice, that one shedding of blood has perfected for all time. So you have been made perfect through the blood of Christ. My four-year-old doesn't get that. But I get that. And when you understand that, then you have context. And then when I say, thank you for the blood of Jesus, then you can get excited because you have context. Come on, you can do better than that. When you have context, it makes sense. The blood of Jesus that banished sin, that that conquered our enemies. The, The blood of Jesus that made us more than a conqueror. See, we say that a lot in church, too. We say, I am more than a conqueror. We say that to people who are going through something. You know, we say, oh, man, but man, you're more than a conqueror. But we don't want to fight any battles, right? We don't want to deal with any conflict, but you can't be a conqueror without conflict. You have to go through something to be a conqueror. And these are sayings. Why? Because it's all about context. I was told the other day from someone uh, very close to me, they said, I just don't want to sacrifice my free time. And my response to them was, you wouldn't know sacrifice if it slapped you in the face. Good response, right? Because to use that sacrifice you have to understand what sacrifice is. I want to sacrifice my free time. Has anybody ever had your mom or somebody say that to you? You wouldn't know hard work. Or you wouldn't know manual labor if it slapped you in the face. You'd think manual labor is the president of Mexico. You know? <laughs> it's all about context. It's all about context. Again, I'm going to read this. Context is the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood or assessed. So the context, when you hear harvest, it's very different because most of us didn't grow up around farming. And I'm talking about farming. How many of you grew up around farming? Okay, so how, any of you actual farmers? Okay, kind of, kind of, we have some, uh, a farmer in the church, eh? kind of, we have some, uh, a farmer in the church, eh? but listen, I'm talking, when, when I think of farming, I think of grain sorghum fields, I think of cotton fields, 
I think of peanut fields. I think of cornfields because I grew up around all of that. Okay, so I grew up around all of that, but you all, 99.877% of you didn't grow up in farming. And so we don't have the same context. So when we hear Jesus say, open your eyes and look, the fields are ripe for harvest. And we think about that in context of the church. We go, whoa, this is exciting, baby. Because when we think harvest, we think God's about to hook us up. If I tell you, hey, church, you, we are in harvest time right now at the exchange. We are in harvest season. You go, oh, baby. Oh, yeah, God's about to hook us up. It's time for us to sit back and relax because we have planted. We have watered. We have tilled the field. We have pulled the weeds. We have prayed, and now we're waiting patiently because God's about to lay the harvest on us. And that's what we think. We've talked about this a few months ago with our staff, what the harvest means. Harvest time is not rest and chill time. That's not what it means. If you've, done it, if you've ever done any farming, then when we say harvest season, you know that harvest time is work time. I grew up in cotton, cotton country, and uh, I had a lot of friends that were farmers. I was around Farming. I lived in the middle of farming. When I got out of high school, I started working for a company called Triumph Seed Comp. And so we, we dealt with this kind of stuff. And, and harvest season is the hardest season. Okay? I'm going to help build something here for you. But I grew up in cotton country. And I'm going to give you some context so you can understand a little bit more uh, of what I'm talking about. One bale of cotton, so we're going we're gonna to use cotton specifically as an example because really, if you, if you could see where I lived, everywhere you go, it looks like snow. Not right now. Right now, it looks just like dirt because they're planting. It's in June. So where I grew up, they plant around June. A lot of people plant cotton in February and stuff, but where I, I lived, it was too hot and not enough rain, so they planted more in the June season so that the harvest time will come around the September-October season. And so where I came from, one bale of cotton can make 1,200, a little over 1,200 men's t-shirts, or, I like this illustration better, 313,600 $100 bills. Mm -hmm. That's a nice bale of cotton right there. Texas is the largest producer of cotton with an average of 5.5 million bales of cotton every year. Where I grew up, the region I grew up, the 25 counties in this area that I lived produce a little over 25% of the cotton in the U.S. Texas produces a great, great majority of all the cotton. 13 to 15 cotton bales make up a module. 13 to 15 cotton bales make up a module. Now, when I say these words, some of you probably have no idea what I'm saying because you didn't grow up around cotton. So you go, and, and they call it a cotton stripper, okay? So it, it, see, we can take that out of context because I can say I drove a stripper, and it means something different to you. So when I grew up in high school, I drove a stripper, um, and, and you in Houston, you ain't got no idea what I'm talking about. So you're like, really? Hmm. This is going to be one of your testimonies. No, it was a, a tractor with a stripper, you know, it was a cotton stripper. And, and, and the cotton stripper will dump the cotton uh, from its basket into that yellow thing. And that's called a module builder. Okay. And that module builder will compact and pack the, the cotton and then it will pull away and it will leave a block of cotton that's about 32 feet long and weighs approximately, give or take, 20,000 pounds. Now, if you went during the month of uh, November, December, back to where I'm from, you would drive up and it, you would see these empty fields that have like, you see cotton everywhere and it would blow your mind how much cotton is still left laying everywhere. But then you see these huge uh, modules of cotton everywhere, just, just everywhere, all over. And then these module trucks, they come and they fill up. That's a, that's a gin in West Texas. And 
all those, it's hard to see all the colors, but it goes almost as far as you can see, but those yellow and pink and blue, those, each one of those is a module weighing approximately 20,000 pounds, 32 feet long. And that module, they'll take that module and the trucks will run 24 hours a day. The cotton stripping runs 24 hours a day. It does not stop. In fact, farmers, when I was in high school, will come to the high school. They'll watch their kids play basketball and then they go right back out and they start stripping cotton because it is 24 hours a day. It is nonstop. These cotton module trucks, they're picking up the modules 24 hours a day, nonstop from October through January, all during the Ginning season. Ginning season is unbelievable. The gins are nonstop. The gins will take that module and they'll process that module. And each module takes anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour to process one. When it comes out, it has separated the, the hulk from the lint, from the moat, from the seed of the cotton. And it will separate all that. And it takes the pure white, the good cotton, the clean cotton, I mean, it's been, it's been washed and dried, and, and it goes through this whole drying process of layers, and then it spits it out, and it compacts it with 3,000 pounds of pressure into a small module, and this block of module is really beautiful, white, nice cotton, and it weighs about 500 pounds, and it, the modules are, you know, four foot by three foot by four foot, give or take, just block of pure white cotton. And to get that pure white cotton, you have to strip 1,500 pounds of cotton to get to that. Just put it in perspective. So when I say it's harvest time, you got to understand harvest time is the hardest time. I know a lot of farmers in West Texas, they eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner in their tractors. They eat everything in their tractors. They'll come home. They'll sleep for a couple hours, take a shower, and they go right back. And it is nonstop. And for about two, two months, it depends on how many pastures they have, it takes a, a month or so of that nonstop for each farmer to harvest. Is. And then everything is dependent upon the rain and the freeze, and you've got to get it before the first freeze. And, and it's, it's such a process. Har, harvest time. Is the hardest time. Harvest time isn't like Little Caesar's hot. Is the hardest time. Harvest time isn't like Little Caesar's hot and ready. Okay? It just doesn't happen like that. That's not the way it works. Listen to me. You cannot reap at rest. It's not the way it works. So let's go back and let's look at our text. So I'm going to put all this into context for you. The Bible says Jesus went to Samaria. Okay? Um, it actually says Jesus had to go to Samaria. Now, this is really important for you to get because all the other Jews went around Samaria. No, no, the Jews did not go through Samaria because they didn't like the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. It was a beautiful relationship. But Jesus goes right into Samaria. The Bible says he had to go there, so he goes into Samaria. Now, it's still hard for us to process the hate that the Jews had. This was 500 years of hate between the Jews and the Samaritans because today, when we hear the word Samaritan, we think good. We think good Samaritan. That's our context because we have this cool story in the Bible where this good Samaritan does all this work. We preached a whole series called Get Off Your Donkey from this story of the good Samaritan. So today in 2018 in Houston, Texas, we hear Samaritan and we immediately think good. The disciples did not think good. They weren't thinking this way. They, they were thinking, you dirty, dirty, low life. And, and all these words I'm choosing are the Christian version of the words that I would like to say because they despised Samaritans and the feeling was, was very mutual. So Jesus walks right into this situation and, and the Jews hate the Samaritans. The Samaritans hate the Jews. <coughs> nothing fits. Nothing makes sense. Jesus goes right in there. And the Bible says this, that the disciples are hungry. So they leave Jesus. They separate from Jesus. Jesus continues going into Samaria and the disciples go to eat. 
Now, this is where most all of you, you kind of know the story. You've heard this story. Jesus goes to the well, right? This is where we get the story of the woman at the well. So when you hear people say, the woman at the well, this is the story. So Jesus is in Samaria. The disciples went off to go uh, get their, their grub on. So they're eating. And Jesus is at the well, and he meets a woman at the well. Now, during this conversation, what we, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase this. This is about, um, in John chapter 4, it's about 40, 45 verses, somewhere in there, uh, about this story. Jesus meets this woman at the well, and we find out that she has five husbands. She's had five husbands, and she's living with a sixth husband. And she and Jesus get into some kind of a conversation and when you read the story, you can tell that that conversation gets a little bit heated. They start having an argument, and they're having this argument because she's telling Jesus, say, well, you Jews, y'all worship here, and we Samaritans, we worship here. Y'all worship that way. We worship this way. You're a man. I'm a woman. You're a rabbi. You're, you're not even supposed to be talking to me. This is the conversation they're having. And it gets kind of heated and they kind of go back and forth. And they're having this, this fight. And she has no real no uh, concept that she is speaking to the man who could solve all of her problems. She's having an argument with the problem solver. And she doesn't know that. She doesn't see that. She doesn't get it yet. So they're having this argument. She comes for water. Jesus is standing there. He starts this conversation. Jesus is trying to give her water, but not the kind of water she wants. He's trying to give her the living water so she'll never thirst again. They have this argument, and now you got to remember that the disciples, they're off eating. So they've been eating, and they get done eating, and they start heading into Samaria, and they're heading uh, to the well to meet Jesus, and from a distance, they see Jesus talking to a woman. Everybody go, ooh. Yeah. He's talking to, not only that, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Oh, see, it gets better. Not only that, he's talking to a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation with men. Oh, the plot thickens. Somebody should make a movie out of this. He's talking to this woman, and the disciples get there, and they say what obviously you would say. Nothing. <laughs> they get there to Jesus, and he's talking to this woman, the Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman with guy issues, and they get up to Jesus, and they go, and you can see one of them go, I ain't gonna say nothing. Say something. No, you should say something. You say something. Nose goes, oh, he's going to say something. And, and they're not going to say anything. And, and, and the disciples stand there. Well, she is talking to Jesus. And at the end of this conversation, the, the disciples have now come up. And the, the Bible says in verse 25 that the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. We know that's what's going to happen. Jesus then declared, I, the one speaking to you, I'm he. The one speaking to you, I'm he. And she just stands there for a minute. I'm he. Yeah. The, the, you know. Hello. <laughs> the Messiah. The Bible says she gets so excited She's maybe confused. She's excited. She doesn't know what to think. She's had this conversation with a man that she wasn't supposed to be having at the well. And, and this guy, he starts saying things to her. Her mind is blown. The Bible says that she leaves her jar of water there and she runs back to Samaria. She goes back to Samaria. She's got to tell somebody. So she goes to the, town, to the town square where all the men are. And she goes, listen, I met a man. And they go, yeah, bet you did. <laughs> Surprise. Hey, she met a man. Oh, my goodness. You know, the sky is falling. Right? She said, no, 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 no. This guy, he's different. 
And she says in this conversation, she says, this guy knows everything about me. He knows everything about me. And Jesus didn't say everything. He, she says, he told me everything I've ever done. Well, now we read that story. Jesus didn't tell her everything she'd ever done. He told her, he says, I know who you are. You've, got, you've had five husbands and the one you're living with now, you're not even married to. She took that and went, oh, my Lord, he knows everything about me. She knew who he, there was something that she recognized immediately who Jesus was. So she's talking to the men in the town in Samaria, and she says, could this be the Messiah? They've been waiting. They've been watching. They've heard rumors that he's coming, that the Messiah will come one day. The questions that begin to, I can't imagine, they were like, so the Messiah was with a bunch of Jews? Because if you're a Samaritan, that's probably a hard pill to swallow. So they're, they're confused, and she's like, trust, this guy knows everything about me. So they all gather up, and the Bible says they headed towards the well. Whether that was way outside of town, on the edge of town, I don't know. They started heading towards the well. Now, this lady may have been crazy, but it's pretty obvious by what we read that she's persuasive, right? She's got five husbands, living with another one. She goes to town, gets every man in town to follow her, okay? So this lady's persuasive, so they start heading back. Now, while the townspeople are heading back, I want to look at verse number 31. It says, meanwhile, the disciples urge him, Rabbi, eat something, Jesus hadn't eaten all day. They knew that they were hungry, so they went and ate. They've already come back. Jesus still hasn't eaten anything, so they know he has to be hungry. And they said, Jesus, eat something. And he makes a really powerful, awesome Jesus statement. He says, but then he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Come on, that's powerful. Jesus tells the disciples, I have, come on, that's powerful. Jesus tells the disciples, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. See, I've got something on the inside of me that sustains me. I've got something on the inside of me that can keep me going day after day. You have to understand, you are talking to the bread of life. I've got food that you don't even know. You don't even understand. The disciples are all confused because they're meal-minded. The disciples are about a meal. You know what? If you look at the church today, most of the church today is about a meal. We're meal-minded. Where's the next meal? Where's the next job? Where's the next relationship? But Jesus wasn't about a meal. He was about a mission. He was focused on a mission. That's why he couldn't go around Samaria. He had to go into Samaria. That's why he couldn't go out to eat with the guys. He had to go to the well. He was on a mission. It wasn't about a meal. He could have went and got a quick fix, but he's about his father's business. I'm on a mission. I don't have time for just a meal. What he's trying to tell the disciples, I don't have time for a meal because it's harvest time. It's work time. The reason that we planted this church at the exchange is because it's harvest time. It's work time. We can't be meal-minded. It doesn't work that way. It's harvest time, and it's time to reap the blessings of the Lord. But it's not supper time. It's harvest time, and there's a big difference. They were about a meal and he was about a harvest. They were about comfort and convenience. And sometimes our need for convenience has put us out of commission. I know I'm called to go to this church, but this church is just so much closer. It's just so much easier. I like this church more because they've got everything I need, you know. They've got everything I want, and this is what I want. And so it becomes all about convenience. And we want a Burger King church that'll give it to us our way instead of a Walmart church that has you check out yourself at the end of your shopping. Right? We, people gripe about that. They don't want to shop all day because we want it our way. We want it the convenient way, the easy way. It's harvest time and it's work time. So every Bible-believing church in and the world, to me, is in harvest season all the time. 
Every season is harvest season. If you're not preaching harvest season, if you're not you're expecting harvest season, then I think that you're really missing it. You just have to decide to work or to watch. It has to drive us. So he says this. You have this saying. It's four months till harvest. This is where I'm going to put it all together, and I want you to get this. So what's the context? What's the context of what Jesus is trying to present? Jesus says, don't worry about giving me a meal. You're about a meal. I'm about a mission. You're about a meal. I'm about a mission. Be about a mission. That's what we have to become as a church. We have to be about a mission. When we go to work, we need to realize it's not about work, but it's about a mission. It's not about a meal. It's about a mission. Young people, when we go to school, it's not about school. It's actually a mission, and we don't get that. In fact, when I got out of school, I remember going back and calling some of my friends because I missed the fact that it was a mission when I was in school. To me, it was about a meal. That's why when they party, you reap. When they eat, you reap. Become about a mission. And as a church, we have to look at everything and become about the mission. Jesus says in verse 34, this was our opening text this morning. And I want you to really, really get this. He says, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you to open your eyes and look. The fields are ripe. He says, open your eyes. The disciples open their eyes. Jesus is standing at the well. He's talking to the disciples and he says, hey, listen, don't you have a saying that it's four months till harvest? The disciples are sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, we do. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, open your eyes. The fields are ripe for harvest right now. They open their eyes. What do they see? Because remember just a few verses ago, the woman leaves her jar, runs back to where? Come on, somebody. She runs back to where? Samaria. She goes back to Samaria where the place that the disciples despise. She goes and tells all the men, hey, here's what's going on. You got to go back with me. The Bible says they gathered up. They started going back. Come on, somebody. Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples. And he says, listen, the field's ripe. Look up. They look up. What do they see? They see the Samaritans. The Samaritans start coming that way. And Jesus says, look up. The field's right. It's harvest time. The disciples look up. They see the Samaritans. And they say, "Whoa! praise the Lord Jesus. We're all about the harvest. But the Samaritans are coming. We need to get out of here. Jesus says, I said, look up. It's harvest time. The harvest is coming. And they said, we're excited about the harvest, Jesus. But the Samaritans are on their way. They don't like us. And we don't like them. Jesus says, look up. I'm telling you, the harvest is walking towards you. The harvest is coming towards you. It's harvest season, and they're walking towards you. The disciples look up, and they see the Samaritans, and they realize at this moment that what they were calling a problem, Jesus was calling a harvest. What, what they perceived as issues, Jesus perceived as harvest. They were there saying, hey, we're all about the harvest. We are the chosen few. We are the disciples of the living God. We know who you are, Jesus. And he's saying, look up. Look up. Because there's the harvest. There's the harvest. There's the harvest. There's the harvest. The disciples begin to realize what Jesus was saying. I don't think that they recognized it for a while. Jesus is saying, look up, it's harvest time. I think he's calling the exchange this morning. And he's saying, hey, all right, look up, wake up. Wake up, it's harvest time. Okay, we've played church for a while. Congratulations. 
It feels good. I hope you liked it. But congratulations. It's work time. It's harvest time. We can't sit here and play church all day. The harvest is not going to pick itself. I've worked in a lot of fields before, and I've never seen cotton pick itself. I've never seen corn shuck itself. It's about the harvesters, and Jesus is telling the disciples, it's harvest time. The funny thing is, is the disciples, when Jesus says that, they never saw it coming. Listen, if you can't recognize it, you can't reap it. If you don't recognize it, you won't reap it. You can't reap what you don't recognize. It's harvest time. Sometimes you have to look at your problem and you have to reach inside of your problem to pull out the harvest. So maybe the harvest is inside of your problem. Mm. I didn't figure I would get a lot of shouts right there. Sometimes the harvest is in your frustration. The harvest is in your issues. So stop looking at your problem like a problem and maybe start looking at your problem like a harvest. As a church this week, I started writing down all the problems at the church. We've got a few. My list got longer and longer and longer. But my mission in writing them down was to realize the harvest inside of those problems. And every one of those problems come attached to harvest. So what I would perceive as problems and frustration, Jesus is declaring over the exchange church that it's harvest time. Harvest time is the hardest time. It's work time, and it requires sleepless nights. It requires a lot of praying. It requires fasting. It requires studying. It requires work. Harvest time is the hardest time, but it's the rewarding time. You don't get paid until the harvest comes in. I was reading stuff about cotton this week and and about the ginning process and and all that, And, and it says that when a farmer takes all of his cotton they run it through the gin every cotton module is numbered so they have like you know k 37 42 b and it's all you know it's all set up in lots to each farmer they take that ginned cotton and they take a sample of it and they send it immediately to the usda and the usda they process and they examine the cotton to see the quality the purity of the cotton cotton and then they put a price tag on it so the gin processes the cotton then they put it into a module and they take a sample of that send it off and so every module has a sample that's sent off and the usda they put a price on that the farmer doesn't get paid He's worked and he's worked and he's worked and he's brought in all the cotton, all the cotton and he doesn't get paid until harvest season is over. I think the problem with a lot of Christians is they come in, they get excited, they see the field, they see potential and they go, man, this is awesome. I want this life and then it becomes work and they go, whoa, 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 I don't want this work and they leave and they leave and they say, well, I never even got paid. I never even got what I went there for. That's because you never even made it through the season. You left before the season even got to you. Harvest time is the hardest time. It doesn't just fall in your lap. So if you're here this morning and you say, man, I've just got some financial issues. No, you've got some harvest issues. Your harvest is in your financial problem. Nope, no amens there. That's okay. That's okay. I'll just make a middle note. Don't say that ever again. Listen, your frustration, your harvest is in your frustration. You may be like the Samaritans this morning. You have no relationship with Jesus. But you need to know that Jesus, he went into Samaria. He went looking. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a second. All across this room. Jesus went looking for the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't show up 
on his doorstep. He showed up on their doorstep and he came looking for them. He could have went around Samaria, but he went to to Samaria. And this morning he could have skipped the exchange, but he's here and he picks you. He chose you. He's look picks you. He chose you. He's looking at you. The question is, will you choose him? So if you're here this morning, you say, you know what? I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I need to fix that. And I want to change it right now. If that's you, just slip your hand up. You can put it right back down. Anybody all across this room? Amen. See those hands. Anybody else? You just slip it up and put it right back down. Come on, pray this prayer with me. Father, can I, everybody say this. Father, God, I need a relationship with you. So I ask you to forgive me and wash away my sin. I recognize the sacrifice that you made for me and I receive it right now. And from this moment on, I have been made perfect because of your sacrifice. And I accept that. And I will now walk in it. And I will live it because I am a child of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, for the rest of us this morning, harvest time is the hardest time. So I'm going to give you some application so you can go out this week. But every time you see a problem this week, every time you get frustrated, whether it's in your car, whether it's at work, whether it's in your house, whether it's with your kids, I want you to see that problem and ask the question, where's the harvest? What is the harvest in this situation I'm going through? What is the harvest that God's trying to get to me that right now all I see is a problem? All I see is an issue. What is the harvest? And the next thing is we have to be about a mission, not about a meal. See, at the exchange, we can come in and we can give you some some food every Sunday. We can feed you a little bit and that'll hold you over maybe till the next service or you go home. Listen, if you're living from church service to church service to church service to church service, you're missing it. You're missing it because it's not about a meal. If your relationship with God only involves this building, then you are missing a relationship with God. So we've got to stop being about a meal and we've got to be about a mission. So this week, I want you to be about a mission. I want you to be about a mission. When you get up in the morning, I want you to say, God, today is the day that you have made and I will rejoice and I'll be glad in it. I'm on a mission today.